This is Paul Nobles from Eat Reform. I am here with Catherine Adams and Sam Sackett. Both of these guys are coaches within Eat Reform. And we're going to kind of, uh, this is actually one of our quick start classes. And our quick start classes, you might have to mute um, somebody, but let me just see if I can find out who it is. There we go. It was Lori. So uh, what we do here is Quick Start is sort of, it's a uh, addition that you can buy to the um, membership at Eat to Perform. And what it allows you to do is have more interaction with the coaches and, and different little perks. Um, as an example, um, I think it was nine, you know, Quick Start Lifetime clients um, ended up winning uh, lifters this week that were custom designed by me. Um, so that was kind of cool and it's kind of fun to do. And I've been sort of in this um, de facto designing position, which has been sort of fun. We've wanted to do apparel for a while, but it's it's sort of a difficult thing to do because one the you have to sort of anticipate the amount of demand and so we've kind of come up with a, a little different way of doing it and one of the ways is to sort of limit things um, and we've released the shoes and then we've released some wrist straps and then this weekend we're going to uh, release a hoodie and actually you can sort of see my hoodie um, if you're on camera it says eat to reform on the hood and then on the back it says bar don't lie um, and so the, the one this week will be, will have a little different saying, and it's a version of our, um, train not to suck at life, um, shirts. So it's kind of a fun little, it was actually our most popular, um, saying on any t-shirt ever. So we, we thought we'd make it into a hoodie. There'll only be like 30 available. Um, and then we'll... We already have the, the sweatshirts pre-order. We just need to know what sizes to buy. But um, it'll probably take about 7 to 10 days for people to get those. So what I thought we would do today, and if anybody's you know in the um, has any questions, you know, feel free to bring them up. What I was mentioning to Sam and Catherine before we started was that a lot of the podcasts so far have been related to um, training issues. And the last couple uh, podcasts we did was talking about why weight training is important and then why cardio is important. And so we're probably not going astray from that too much. But what I wanted to do was kind of put it within the framework of fat loss and trying to to optimize fat loss and trying to find calorie balance, right? And so uh, I think what a lot of people struggle with, I'll, I'll sort of, there was, there was a couple things and we actually had a coach from the coaches course ask me a question and I wanted to get to that first. So she was talking about with, with two athletes with a fair amount of fat to use and how they could um, 
you know, see results relatively quickly. And um, she's got them lifting and she wanted to know what type of cardio they could use to sort of optimize their fat loss. One of the issues that you have with um, athletes with a lot of fat to use is they don't have a good baseline. And typically their baseline ends up being relatively low. And it sort of reminded me through a conversation that we were having with Dr. Brad Schoenfeld, but a previous conversation that we had with Dr. Lane Norton was how do you measure your metabolism? And there's a couple thoughts on that. One, you can body fat test. It'll give you an amount of muscle. That's not great, but it's better than what most people know. Secondly, you can do VO2 max testing to see whether or not an athlete, you know, has the ability to burn, you know, fats or carbohydrates efficiently. But probably the best way to do it is the least popular. And um, it's basically by using a metabolic cart. And what was interesting in our discussion with Dr. Lane Norton was he talked about bodybuilders and how they would put a bodybuilder through a metabolic cart after they had gone through a cycle of dieting. Um, you know, obviously for fat loss, they're trying to cut for a show, things of that nature. And I can't remember the specifics. I'd have to go back. But it was dramatic when a 210-pound male, I think, went to 195 pounds, something like that. And when measured in a lab using a metabolic cart, you know, it more than halved his metabolism. So what does that mean? So what's, what is the, um, why is that relevant to, to these two ladies and what they need to do? Well, it's relevant in the fact that you probably don't know their calories at this point. And if they've come to you, you know, and you're just assuming that they've been overeating the whole time, there is no reason why you can't establish some type of baseline where they're relatively weight stable or maybe losing a little bit of weight, but just not near as much as you know they might have wanted to when they first started with you, right? I mean, the simple fact of the matter is, is a lot of the athletes that we're working with, you know, they've been down this road many times. And the simple, you know, answer has kind of left them befuddled, right? And my argument to people, and, you know, we'll use a few scenarios, um, is that if you have a baseline, then we can work off of that baseline. But if you don't have a baseline at all, you're basically just throwing darts in the dark. And from that perspective, you know, I think a lot of people go, okay, well, this athlete has a fair amount of fat to use, let's just cut their calories as low as they could possibly tolerate and just see how that works out. Well, I'll tell you how it works out. Pretty much go to any mall, you know, any public venue anywhere, and you'll see that we have an epidemic on our hands because that shit ain't working, right? <laughs> and so what we need to do as, you know, health providers, right, we're kind of more on the proactive side than the reactive side, 
is talk people down. And I think that, you know, that's sort of an interesting perspective that we have that not a lot of people have. One of the things that I'm a big proponent of is that fitness professionals take back the argument as it relates to work capacity from the dieting people. And they're going to come to many of us, right? And ask them, you know, for to help them with their fat loss because they know that moving is part of the equation. They just don't have it all figured out. What our argument is, is that if we can establish a good baseline for these people, then we can find calorie balance, but we can also find what works for them, right? So when we're talking about someone with fat to use and someone trying to increase meta metabolic capacity, here's the interesting thing about athletes with a fair amount of fat to use. They're scientifically known to have fairly decent metabolisms, right? And so a lot of them will say to you, how is that even possible? Because I have a lot of fat on my body. Clearly, if my metabolism was working great, you know, then I wouldn't have that problem. Well, you can out-eat your metabolism. And that's ultimately what happened in their scenario. And that's what happened in my scenario. Even though I was a fairly active person, I was always kind of jittery and walking around and all this other type of stuff. When, you know, you look at it, you know, the amount of calories that I was eating on a daily basis, you know, far exceeded anything that I was doing, right? And so for the athletes that that you're working with and you're wondering whether or not, you know, something like rowing, I love rowing, I love ellipticals, I love anything low impact for athletes with more weight, you know, one thing that, that, you know, I would caution if you own like a CrossFit gym or you believe that high intensity is the work, is the real deal, right? I would argue that one, an athlete that's bigger often struggles to do high intensity. So what's high intensity for a 175 pound male, right, is not high intensity for a 250 pound female, and then we're looking at joint pain and all this other kind of stuff, right? So that, not saying that you wouldn't want to have some way for that athlete to get their heart working a little bit more. But let's be honest, just moving is going to get their heart stimulated in a big way just because of the amount of fat that they have on their body. And so rowing, elliptical, walking, hiking you know, um, challenging them, but really kind of getting their movement because she was asking what we would supplement for that individual. And in general, what we would like them to do is just move more, right? Um, and move more without um, being particularly stressful on their body. Any thoughts on that, Sam? I mean, I know that, you know, as somebody that works with clients and stuff like that, you know, you have kind of a strategy mm -hmm. with those types of folks mm -hmm. yeah usually um like you said like you said just you know the old meat again you know just getting to move around and getting to just burn more daily calories in general you know finding a activity that you enjoy is is always uh, beneficial um so when sam 
so a lot of times people are listening to this podcast that don't know anything about like these acronyms. What Sam's saying when he says NEAT, he's referring to non-exercise activity thermogenesis. Basically, the time outside of the time that you're exercising, how many calories you're burning at that point. I will bring up one thing, interesting point, you know, I'm interrupting Sam, but when people talk about activity trackers, a lot of the time they get upset that activity trackers aren't logging their exercise correctly. Activity trackers, the biggest advantage of an activity tracker really is not the exercise. I can guess on your exercise and how much you burned within an hour, but I can't tell you how much you're burning the other 23 hours. And in that way, an activity tracker is very useful. Go ahead, Sam. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think also a lot of people um, overestimate the amount of calories they're actually burning when they're exercising, unless they're doing some very high volume, you know, supersets, you know, doing exercises back to back and keeping their heart rate, you know, 130, 140 the whole time. If they're just, you know, lifting a weight, you know, doing a regular just muscle building program, you're not going to be burning an insane amount of calories doing that. So that's why outside of the gym, neat, you know, keeping that high, you know, finding what you like is very beneficial to keep your calorie burn high. Um, also, I mentioned this in the past, I do like um, having most people do some type of cardio program into their routines. If it is um, low intensity, medium intensity, or even high intensity interval training, um, I think it could be all beneficial. And if you'd like to get into details later about kind of my thoughts on kind of how to program that as well. Um, I do also like low impact too. Like you said, ellipticals are fine. You know, people's running abilities are not the best. Um, so I would caution that, especially if you have a lot of weight to lose, um, slamming down on your joints if you don't know how to run correctly can do some damage. So things like you said, elliptical, um, spin bikes, you know, upright bikes are fantastic, especially in high interval training because um, it's very low impact and you can get your heart rate up very high without damaging your joints as well. So, Yeah, I mean, the other thing too to remember when you're talking about high intensity training or weight training or something like this that's going to be really going to stimulate your central nervous system is a lot of times, you know, if somebody's coming from an inactive background, they might actually be pretty strong. I mean, for instance, you know, we were at the Eat Form Open and we had an athlete who never deadlifted a day in her life, right? And she ended up lifting 300 pounds, right? So, I mean, that person walked away pretty hungry that day. I'm, I'm fairly certain. <laughs> and, and so um, you have to let these athletes – I think one of the big messages that we need to get across to these people is that let's put movement first, right? We're not trying to gain any weight, but let's not necessarily try to lose a bunch of weight while we're trying to establish a baseline because that's going to be confusing. What mm -hmm. people typically do, and especially if an athlete has a fair amount of fat to use, their fat layer actually provides some level of protection for their muscle. And so they don't deal with atrophy the way that a lean athlete would. And so typically they can get away with some things that Honestly, I'm not a fan of, but it gets to a point of diminishing returns really quickly. And I think that 
we're fighting a few battles, right? Because sometimes behavior um, is also a struggle. I just remember that big time for me. You know, I talked a lot about um, kind of like the eat this, not that strategy, um, which was kind of a big thing, you know, a few years back where you would sort of substitute kind of some bad habits for some good habits. And I think that when uh, you try to kind of attack too many fronts, if you were asking me the two things that, that I would be attacking, I would try to get that athlete moving more. I would try and get them more conscious of activity, and I would get them focused on behaviors and establishing a baseline. And once we're able to do that, we can do a lot more work. But if we just jump in and try and tack, tackle, you know, the five biggest things, you know, if you look at something like reality television where you have these shows where they're basically torturing these people. I mean, one of the guys recently, um, you know, he was he was eating kind of in a paleo style. And when they when they quizzed him, you know, he was eating like 800 calories a day. And I mean, after the end of the 14 weeks or something like that, I mean, he just like looked like a bag of skin, you know. And, you know, certainly at, cert at, at, at a certain point, you know, your muscle is going to atrophy. And, you know, is, is the weight loss at that point? truly beneficial. I think he lost something like 92 pounds in 14 weeks. I mean, yeah. you're pretty much just destroying someone's metabolism at that point. Right. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. like I said, science from a scientifically from a scientific standpoint, larger athletes actually have a pretty good metabolism. If we can just get them to be somewhat patient, and making movement a priority in their life and then kind of keeping their dieting cycles um, relatively short, we can get a lot of gain, show them that we're on the right path the whole time and at the same time have them thrive as human beings. And mm -hmm. so, yeah. I, I like cardio, but I don't, I think you have to be careful of two things. And, and this is, you know, I've talked about, you know, my journey, you know, being an overweight individual. And the two things that happened to me early on is I got sick a lot. And I got injured a lot because I was just balls to the wall, you know, and I was going to solve all my problems all at once. And when I realized that, you know, it was better to not do that. That was sort of the secret. Mm -hmm. So, um, do you have, I any... said a few points. Yeah, I said, ahead. do you mind if I jump in Paul? Yeah. yeah go right ahead. Uh, Cause I, said, I had a few points. Um, like you said on the, uh, too many variables changing at once really, it just becomes overwhelming for a lot of people. It's just, it's just too much. And like, and, like you said, if you... and confusing. Yeah. Confusing, overwhelming, like all that. And, I've noticed if you can, like you said, get on a good program, you know, increase your activity and do all that first, you have a baseline and then you can start looking at more at the certain calories and kind of get that once you establish a good activity, a good program, a good training routine, whatever you want to do, 
Um, but changing too many things at once and trying to do too many, building too many habits at once, it's just, it's too much. People just go, you know, that's enough. I, I'm going to go back to what I know because that's what I enjoy. Um, second, the thing about you saying, no, these reality shows about people eating 700, 800 calories a day for months on end. And then they just, you know, they lose all this weight and they don't have any muscle because they don't have enough calories. That's one reason why I can't, I'm not a fan at all of crash diets um, because you're not building those habits. You know, you're not building any habits to teach you how to eat correctly or to how to eat, you know, for your body and what you need for muscle gain. And then you just go back to what you know. It's just a short-term thing, which you don't want to have. You want your diet to be what you eat for the rest of your life. I mean, you want something that you enjoy eating and doing. Essentially, it's like try, It's like having an ant problem in your yard and then nuclear bombing it, <laughs> right? That's essentially... <laughs> That's essentially yeah. that's essentially what those shows do, and mm-hmm. you know, I mean, if if you know anything, I mean, in terms of like, just Google this. You know, suicide rates of these people is super high. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of the times they end up gaining the weight back. I mean, it, it is and more. Yeah, it is. It is pretty brutal. Mm-hmm. So there was another scenario from a fat loss perspective that that I thought was interesting, and we've talked about this ad nauseum. And it's one of the reasons why we talk about muscle building and hypertrophy a lot. We had two clients today that we were talking to. And one of them was talking about how she was um, actually, her waist circumference was going higher. Her calories weren't at a higher baseline up to this point. And so she was sort of making the assumption that um, it was her going from kind of really super low calories to kind of reasonable calories, not even the calories that, that she'll ultimately get to that was the issue. So we started talking a little bit about her training and why she wasn't experiencing fat loss, right? Because, you know, to a certain extent, um, you know, if your waist circumference is going up, you can probably assume that you're gaining some fat in that scenario. Maybe, maybe not. Sometimes that can be a little inflammation. I think one of the things that happens a lot of times when you start to incorporate more carbohydrates in your diet, one, you're you're naturally going to have kind of an inflammation tax, right? It's, you know, um, you know, carbohydrates require a little bit more water to filter, get into your muscle, things of that nature. And the issue that a lot of folks have is they're coming from either a you know, low-calorie background, low-carbohydrate background, but they've sort of pushed the limits as it relates to their activity for a long time. And a lot of times they didn't really enjoy it, but they felt sort of painted in a corner, right? They were eating 1,200 calories and working out six days a week and, you know, while they weren't seeing the results that they wanted, they were scared to death of, of, of trying the opposite, right? Where you would try some level of rest or you'd try some level of, you know, upping your calories to kind of normalize things a bit. So, and, and Sam has sort of referenced this, you know, you could talk to Sam and myself, um, Chris, Catherine, we're all in the Eat Reform program and training group. And uh, one of the things that I said to her was 
you know, she was doing CrossFit. Let's see. She was, it was CrossFit, hiking, and, and I think there might have been yoga in there. But really, there was nothing that was actively trying to build muscle. And so when we were talking about why larger athletes have better metabolism, it's fairly simple. Larger athletes have more muscle than smaller athletes as a general rule, right? So if you see someone, you know, at the mall and they're 350 pounds, they've been walking through the world at 350 pounds for a while. The biggest resistance tool that you have in this world is your own body, right? So if you weigh 350 pounds, your body is going to try to adapt to that stimulus, right? Mm -hmm. And even though you might carry a fair amount of fat in that scenario, you know, it's fairly common for a 350-pound person, you know, to be 50% body fat. What that means is that person has 175 pounds of lean mass in that scenario, right? Well, I'm 175 pounds and I'm not all lean mass, right? And so... Um, 175 pounds to 200 pounds, you know, it's not uncommon to see athletes that size have 215 pounds of lean mass when you body fat test them, right? So when I was talking to this gal who was thinking that she has a fat problem and she was thinking that the carbohydrates were an issue, what I explained to her was is it wasn't you know the carbohydrates that was an issue it was the the stimulus of trying to force the uh, liquids that's outside of the cell into the cell right that's essentially you know it's kind of a layman's way of talking about um, what resistance training does but essentially what you're trying to do is take the carbohydrates that you're eating and make make them more nutrient available and when they're nutrient available they you know allow your your glucose stores to become refilled and once glucose is in your muscle basically for it to go back to fat would be very difficult to do and so we walk we're walking her through this next month of trying to incorporate some type of training i think that one, a lot of us get addicted to working with a trainer or working with, let's say, a CrossFit gym, and we do what's on the board, right? What, and, 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 and it feels like if you went to your trainer and said, for my goals, I think I really need to focus on muscle building, like you would insult them. Well, they're probably a professional. They've probably taken a lot of courses that, you know, pretty much goes unused because they're programming for 200 people and, you know, what's on the board and everybody does that. If somebody comes to somebody like Sam or myself or anybody that, that has, you know, some kind of background in training and says, hey, I want to you know, build some muscle, I mean, that that's a happy day for us, right? That that allows us to kind of flex our knowledge. And 
I think that, uh, well, one, it's an underused aspect of, of training in general, right? Where you're eating an adequate amount of, of, of calories, you're then trying to make those nutrients, you know, useful, and then, you know, through some series of work and programming, you create new tissue in the process. In a lot of cases, though, you know, for the athlete that, that I was talking about, you know, she's, she's basically doing a lot of cardio. She's not really asking her body to kind of use those nutrients in the way. It's really more of a catabolic way of thinking things rather than an anabolic way of thinking things. I don't think that necessarily she's... If she were to able to make her body and metabolism more useful, I don't think she would necessarily create new tissue. I think what would happen is she would rehydrate tissue that wasn't necessarily becoming hydrated enough to make adequate work. When we're talking about, you know, um, you know, it's very common to talk about a wet muscle or a dry muscle, right? What's more useful? A wet muscle is more useful than a dry muscle. Um, and we've actually had that discussion on um, a mul multiple other podcasts that we've, we've done together um, with Sam at least. Um, any thoughts on what I'm saying there? Because I think that a lot of people, I mean, you know, we were talking about, you know, like a 5'8 female, 150 pounds, you know, mm -hmm. and, you know, I actually, I don't think we knew her body fat percentage, but, you know, if, I mean, it's not uncommon to have somebody in that scenario be 30% and then they'll think to themselves, well, I've got to lose weight to lose fat. Well, maybe it's the fact that you've been trying to lose weight to lose fat that's actually causing the problem. And so if we can get your lean tissue up, that can be a great stimulus for building lean muscle. And then if once we have your metabolism up, once we have more lean mass on your body, then we can kind of like try and fill in the gaps from a calorie balance perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't um, I don't know like the training, you know, um, experience level of this individual. If they just started out, do you know? Um, if they no, she, she was... You know, she, yeah, she's been training for a while. She's been fit a, a lot of her life, but she did admit that, you know, most of the time that she had been dieting. And of course, you know, that, that's that's fairly common. I mean, you know, that's that's what we deal with a lot where people are trying to get a result. I'll tell you from a from most lean people's perspective obviously we you know we started off talking about people with more fat to use now we're talking about someone that's relatively lean and trying to get leaner usually the answer for that person is protein carbs and work and when you have protein carbs and work um, and you have you know some cardio in the mix I, I you know I hate I hate saying weight training to those types of folks because, you know, they've been kind of running their whole life and then they're like, well, that's not working. And so Paul said to lift weights. And so now all of a sudden I'm just going to lift weights all the time. And it's like, okay, you know, I mean, I remember having uh, one of our clients come to me like in tears saying, you told me to lift weights, 
but I but I loved running and and now I haven't been running for the last four to five months. And I was like, I never told you not to run, you know. Right. I just told you to add some weight training. So that that's part of the problem that we sort of run into is that people don't think from a moderate perspective, right? Mm-hmm. Where you would moderately, you know, kind of move into a more correct way of training. Yeah, you definitely need uh, some some type of resistance training. That's the thing about cardio. Like, it's fine to burn extra calories, but if you don't have that um, that progressive overload stimulus of lifting heavier weights over a period of time, there's no reason for your body to adapt or to build muscle. Like, it, it's the difference between building muscle and just energy expenditure, just burning calories. I mean, that's two different scenarios. And yeah, muscles are then going to burn, you know, more. Uh, calories and fat, obviously, because it needs to, you know, just to keep muscle, you know, it, it takes a lot more energy than it does to keep fat. Um, but, and one thing I want to touch on really quick, Paul, because you said about like, the, like this lady said, uh, she thinks it was the carbohydrates. And that's one thing I think that a lot of people, um, they like about low carbs to begin with is they get that drop in water weight and they go, oh, this is working out great. You know, this first week I dropped five pounds. This is fantastic. But then after a week or two, you hit that wall and you don't know what to do and your energy drops. And then that's where the neat drops, you know, you become more lethargic and that's where a big problem is. It's not usually the carbohydrates um, that are the issue. It's that um, just dropping them out, you're not going to be retaining that water, but that's what you need to be push the proteins in your muscle. If you're on a resistance training program, like that's all, that all works together synergistically. And if you're getting rid of the carbohydrates, that's not an approach I would take personally at all. Well, yeah, I mean, it just it just compromises the level of work that you're able to do. Now, right. if you've been doing low carb, low calorie for a long time, obviously you want to proceed with caution. The problem is, is that you know, for a lot of people, they they're one scared to death, um, and then two, um, you know, because of that fear, they're not they're not very patient. Um, I would argue that if you've tried something else the rest of your life and you've been pretty patient with that and you've been kind of painted in this corner of kind of an unhealthy way of living, you know, because even, you know, when we talk about having a hypocaloric way of eating, you know, that's not comfortable. And it's certainly not something that, and and when I mean hypocaloric, I mean, you know, low, um, what happens in those scenarios is not that people want to be like that. It's just that they feel sort of cornered into it. And, you know, we're the one thing that I think, especially for people that are new to eat form, they don't see the end game. And we're not saying that you would never eat at a deficit. In fact, we're, we make a strong argument that the only way that you can have a decent deficit is to establish a good baseline and work off of that baseline. Otherwise, you're just guessing. And if you're just guessing, a lot of times you're just going to guess extremely low and you're, you'll are you get to a plateau a lot quicker. What Mike talks about, and I think it, it really is one of the, the, the things that have been sort of enlightening to our community, is minimal effective dose and what can you do that gets you the most adaptation 
with the least amount of resistance. And, you know, if you can be patient and you can sort of test that idea over time, you're more likely to get, you know, the result that way, right? And that's what Mike Nelson, you know, obviously that's that's a big emphasis of the book. But, uh, yeah, I mean, any thoughts on that, Sam? Uh, no, that's uh, that's perfect. Um, you know, that's why you do need to find a baseline. You do need to get on, if you want to build muscle, you need to get on a good resistance training program because if you're dropping calories and then you try to add weights in on top of that and you never did that before and you try to add all this cardio in then, you're trying to do all these things, you're going to be reaching a deficit um, a lot quicker and you're going to stall a lot faster at lower calories than you than you should be. And you need to, like you said, get a baseline, find your calories. You know, you can you can only do so much volume at some time. You know, you don't want to be spending, you know, five hours in the gym every day. Um, but you do need to get on a good program so you could work your way up in volume and doing more work. And then you'll, you can have a, a baseline to take away from if you do want to lose weight or something like that. Because you can't, like I said, you're not going to be in the gym all day, every day. But you do need to get on a good program to have a good idea how many calories you do need to take in for sure. So now let me give you the opposite scenario. I'm going to play a little devil's advocate to what you're saying just to kind of um, talk about an alternate scenario. So we had an athlete that was talking to us in the Lifetime Forums. And what she was saying was, you know, I'm training for a marathon. And I was wondering how you would incorporate resistance training into marathon training and, and all these different types of things. And what I said to her, I think was sort of enlightening to her that basically let, let's say that you do some level of high intensity training, some level of resistance training, and then some level of long endurance. Okay. Mm-hmm. And you've got those three buckets that you're working off of. And the good majority of the time, your goal is to look good naked. And so having all three of those things in your bucket somehow is the formula that's going to make the most sense. But occasionally, right, you want to, you know, compete in a CrossFit event or you want to compete in a powerlifting event or you want to run a marathon. So how do you do that? Um... Well, you, you put the emphasis of your bucket basically goes to whatever the emphasis is you're training for. So in her instance, okay, she's going to train long endurance. Okay, so there's some positives to that. So let's talk about the positives. One, typically resting heart rate is going to be a little bit better. Two, you could typically eat a little bit more food because you have a higher calorie expenditure. Uh, three, your recovery typically is going to be better. So like as an example, you wouldn't take away resistance training or you wouldn't take away your high intensity. You would just do them less because obviously the amount of work that you're trying to put towards your long endurance is going to be, um, you know, it's going to take a precedence, right? And so the things that are positive from that will transfer over to the other areas later on. For instance, if somebody is got a low or a low resting heart rate, um, you know, they're sleeping well, they're eating an adequate amount of food, you know, once they're done with, you know, their long endurance, 
that will have some positive transfer to the resistance training or the, the hit. So what's the negative, right? Well, long endurance typically is going to be something that's going to tear down tissue. Now, this is where food matters. One, does it have to tear down tissue? Well, I don't know if you've been to any marathons recently, but there's all different sizes of athletes running marathons, right? And granted, their times are different, but in general, I would say of all the sports, it's probably most representative of all types of people. So clearly, you know, running does not just tear down tissue. Well, why doesn't it do that? And why aren't all runners like Olympic marathoners? Clearly, calorie balance and food matter in that scenario. So if you're trying to preserve the muscle that you have during resistance training or during your hit, you're going to want to eat an adequate amount of food. Okay, you go, well, that sounds good. That would be muscle preserving. Well, we're not trying to get you abs necessarily. And I would argue that if you look at the physique of a, a runner, you know, as opposed to say a sprinter or somebody like a bodybuilder or something like that, they don't have abs the way that those people do. Why don't they? Well, because they're not training their muscles, right? Abs are muscles, you know, um, biceps are muscles. And so if your bucket is mostly on long endurance because you want to complete a marathon, which is a great physical achievement, and you decide, hey, you know what? I heard that Sam guy say I should have resistance training in my programming. I think that that's pretty smart. So I'm going to try and do that, and then I'm going to try and do hit, but then I'm going to try and do a marathon. You're going to have to concede something one way or the other. Now, can you have great work capacity? You know, can you build work capacity to where, you know, you might be able to get away with a little bit more marathoning, a little bit more resistance training? There are instances, as an example, where um, athletes, you know, try to have a, like a longer run resistance training. I actually was doing something real similar to that. I'm trying to think of what Alex Vieta's, um, I think it's complete human performance. Um, yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, Alex does as good a job as anybody out there in regards to trying to get a marathoner that also can do resistance training and can also do hit. And Alex would be the first one to tell you that it's never perfect. You're never going to completely nail it to where everything is going to be 100%. You've got to pick a bucket, right? Mm -hmm. And so to the athlete that wants to achieve the marathon, great goal. But in terms of having an eight-pack, you're not going to have an eight-pack, right? <laughs> um, are there marathoners that have an eight-pack? I mean, sure. of course there are. There's going to be outliers in every scenario. We don't know 
how long they've been training, how long they've been building muscle, and all these different scenarios. But if you asked Sam, myself, and virtually anyone else on the planet that's got any knowledge of training, you know, how you would get abs, they would not say marathon running. And that's okay, right? Because, you know, even from my perspective, like if you see my before and after, you'll see that, you know, I sort of got stuck, you know, in kind of an over cardio approach. And then as I moved into weightlifting, that's when you saw me kind of round out from a body composition standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's where I, you know, I kind of wanted to, to riff off of what Sam was saying. There are times where for an athletic goal, you would want to reduce resistance training and you would want to reduce your hit, right? You would, in my argument, and and I'll just, I'll just tell you specifically because, you know, I did it. um, When I went to powerlifting, it was very helpful to be able to just go to that bucket and lift heavy all the time. And I was able to lift a lot of weight, but I let my long endurance bucket and my, my, actually my, my hit, I was still doing hit, but you know, when you're lifting heavy all the time, and that was sort of the emphasis of, you know, the last two podcasts, um, or two, uh, the podcast, two podcasts ago was that when you lift heavy all the time, one, you're banging on your central nervous system. It's going to be stressful. Sleep's going to be affected. You're going to have to eat more. And a lot of times you're going to be adding bodily fat in that process as a way of adapting to the, the, the stimulus. I mean, if you were to ask me, Paul, how can I lift the most amount of weight the quickest? I would just say put on as much weight as you can in short amount of time. Right. Because, you know, muscle is a factor, but leverage against the bar, you know, and weight is Mm -hmm. is a bigger factor in a short term on a short term basis. And the reason why I mentioned that is because, you know, you can affect all of these positively. Like, let, let, let me give you an example. Long endurance. Right. Um we can kind of focus on the long endurance and we can run the good majority of the time, but that's not going to be a great way for keeping muscle and getting stronger in terms of like your high intensity work. If you're focused a little bit more on long endurance, high intensity work, you know, is obviously going to go down. Let's reverse it. Let's say that you're doing high intensity work. Well, what do we know is the problem with high intensity work? One, it takes a lot out of you in a short period of time. So the amount of work that you can do is lessened over time, right? So are you really going to want to deadlift 500 pounds that night after you did Fran? Probably not, right? So you have to think about how you're you know, doing all of this. And you can't just default to, I'm just going to do two-a-days all the time. Right. Because, you know, um, you know, depending on your athletic ability, it it can it can be kind of a a net negative. Mm -hmm. Any thoughts on on what I'm saying there? Because, you know, obviously, I think you probably agree with me, but it was a little bit of a challenge to what you were saying. 
Yeah, no, I definitely agree. Um, specificity is key. I mean, you have to know um, what your goals are. You know, if you want to be a marathon runner, you can't be, you can't be a bodybuilder. You can't do everything all at once. Like things are going to take precedent over another. And that's why specificity to what you're doing is, is the key. And if you want to be a marathon runner, you better work on your endurance. And I would not, like you said, get totally rid of resistance training or even some high intensity work. They just need to be minimal compared to working on your long distance runnings. If it's in the gym or outside or whatever you have to do, um, cause they can complement one another, but you just have to understand how to program them correctly. So you're not interfering with one another. And one thing about, um, you know, you said, you know, you switched from powerlifting, but you're still doing high intensity work. The thing about high intensity work and powerlifting or just bodybuilding in general, they're very similar. If you think about it, you know, your work time, you know, you're, if you're sprinting for or running for 30 seconds or 45 seconds, then you take 30 seconds off or a minute off or whatever you do. That's very similar to what a bodybuilding program is. You know, you work out, you know, 45 seconds of work and then you rest and then you repeat. So not having, you know, just getting rid of endurance completely, you know, low intensity, you know, keeping your heart rate around 120 to 140 is a different, it's a different animal, lack of a better term, um, to just get rid of completely because it can complement it in working up your work capacity to have better training sessions in general. Um, you can get more work done if you um, work on that as well. Well, actually, one of the things that Alex talks about with his hybrid cell training from Complete Human Performance is... If you're going to do heavy lifting, um, having a hit finisher tends to be a good thing for those yes. sessions um, as long as you're programming it correctly because um, you're working similar energy systems and muscle fibers. And yes. so, mm -hmm. you know, you would want to sort of keep those the opposite. That's, a, that's like Alex's big takeaway. Um, yeah. And that's the thing that you know, he's brought to kind of the fitness industry that sort of allowed for some level of better programming. And mm -hmm. so, um, so I, I think the ultimate point is, you know, are you trying to get better at marathoning or are you trying to look better naked? Right. And it, it's okay to, it's okay to have, you know, both goals at different times. Right. But and, and and certainly there are a lot of marathoners that look good naked, but how did they program their training previous to that? You know, how many people come from a weightlifting background want to kind of improve their long endurance, but they already have a fair amount of muscle. If you don't have yeah. a fair amount of muscle and then you go to go to marathoning, well you know, that could be too similar to what you've already done to try and adapt to the stimulus. Like, I don't know if, if, if everybody saw, but we had kind of this thing and, and this professor was talking about like how a lobster deals with stress. And I'll just kind of, you know, really, I'll talk about it uh, real quickly and kind of summarize what he was saying. And I'll probably bastardize it in a big way. But what he was saying was, is that you have like the lobsters have this rigid shell and then they're kind of like the soft and cushy little animals right and as the animals start to grow and lobsters are constantly growing um, lobsters are sort of known I, 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 I'm, I'm sort of mixing two things here but 
lobsters, I believe, um, can live like forever. Like the thing that, that stops lobsters is predators, right? And people that, but they're, they're, I believe that they can live forever. Um, you might you might want to Google that one. Though. I'm just I'm just laughing this whole time because you're talking about lobsters and it's just it's just funny. It's just, I didn't know about I didn't know about this. Yeah, well, you might want to Google that. My 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 daughter's actually um, turned me on to that one a while back. So anyway, so a lobster has this rigid shell, and then uh, you know it's like this soft cushiony type animal, and then as it grows, it has to rid itself of the shell and so it goes into you know a rock or whatever and then comes out with another shell that's bigger and stronger and then eventually the lobster grows again and has to reduce its and and what the what the guy was saying was the the emphasis for change was that the lobster got uncomfortable and when the lobster got uncomfortable it lost its shell and created something new and what he was saying he was making you know if you went to the doctor and you got Valium and Zoloft and stuff like this then you're not allowing for the stress and being uncomfortable to help you with the adaptation right same could be said for weightlifting if you're never uncomfortable and you're always doing something just to earn calories, essentially all you're trying to do is stay in the same shell, right? You have to shed your shell. You have to get better. Doesn't necessarily mean bigger, but it does mean better, right? You have to keep working to thrive. And so I thought that was kind of interesting, you know, and, and I thought it was a great analogy for you know, what we do, because, you know, there's going to be levels. There's been a lot of people that have been trying to find their way, getting uncomfortable um, from a hypocaloric standpoint. And what we're saying is try and do both, where you have some level of eating an adequate amount for what you do that allows you to adapt to the the cool things that you're doing to in the gym you know i mean it's sort of it's sort of embarrassing because like i posted a video in our daily challenges of me doing l-sit pull-ups and you know when when i do that stuff it, it's very humbling because i'm you know first of all i'm a 47 year old man you know there are certainly more fit people than me in the world and then secondly um you know and we all have those thoughts about, you know, um, you know, I wish I were better than I am right now, right? And one of the reasons why I like to put videos out there like that, like when I was doing the video, I was thinking to myself, well, I could have done it differently. Actually, there was a great, there was um, Jason Calacanis was talking about Snapchat and why Snapchat is so popular. And what he said was was perfect. He said, if you're on Instagram or Facebook, you might do a video six or seven times because you want that video to be perfect because it's going to live on there forever. He said, if you put it on Snapchat, it could go away in nine seconds. 
And what that means is, is that it takes away like all that bullshit that I was just talking about. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there is no question that there's probably no other 47 year old man in my neighborhood that can do LSAT pull-ups. You know what I mean? <laughs> but I don't view myself, you know, from the standpoint of comparing myself to, you know, even the form of me, I'm always trying to push myself to be a little bit more. That's a good thing and a bad thing. Cause sometimes, you know, you'll look at your progress up to this point and then, you know, kind of feel like, Oh, Gosh, you know, I wish my legs were a little straighter or I wish my legs were a little bit higher there, you know, or something of that. But, you know, that's kind of, you know, I just want to show you guys, like, even I deal with that bullshit, you know, mm -hmm. I'm, I mean, and I'm, I'm sure Sam can probably relate to that. We all, we all have that, you know, mm -hmm. um, so we are an hour in, I think we covered a lot of ground here. Uh, you know, I don't know exactly how much fat loss we covered, but it was a lot more fat lossy than training. So that's something that I think a lot of people would have probably wanted to hear. Um, any thoughts, Catherine and Sam, before we shut her down? Um, I just wanted to touch on one thing real quick because it could be a whole other podcast in general. Um, you know, you said like comparing yourself to others, and I think that's a um, a big issue, especially nowadays with Facebook and Instagram. People like follow these people and try to compare themselves to them, and I, that's that's not something that I like to see. You know, you should be comparing yourself to yourself and always trying to better yourself, not trying to compare yourself to another athlete, uh, fitness celebrity, whoever. And I think that can skew a lot of people's mindset. Be like, oh, I'm working my butt off, but how come I don't look like this person or this person? And it shouldn't, it shouldn't be that. It should be, hey, how did I look two months ago? And am I improved from then? And like, that should be the mindset. And people look at this external motivation and it should really be coming from, you know, within yourself and look and comparing yourself to yourself and yourself only. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I think, it, you know, you could actually make an argument for no change at all, right? I mean, if you don't change at all, but you maintain healthy habits and you were able to get to the gym and you were able to have a good relationship with yourself in the mirror, I would say that there's times where staying the same or maybe even getting a little bit worse isn't all that bad, right? And I mm -hmm. think that, you know, we've sort of placed these judgments on ourselves that are unnecessary and unhelpful as it relates to our overall journey. I mean, one of the things that's that I didn't know, you know, before I became a fit person was like how joyful it is just to be fit and just to enjoy your journey on a daily basis and just be comfortable in your own skin. I didn't know that. You know, I mean, I didn't know what it was like to go you know, I'm not trying to get to 4%, you know what I mean? And I think when I first started Eat to Perform, one of the things that I, I said was, I mean, there's so many things about when I first started Eat to Perform that, you know, like most people don't even know. Most people don't know that I was vehemently against recipes because I wanted, I wanted food to be simple, right? Right. Um, I changed my mind on that. 
you know, I, I, I think that some level of variety is, is fun. But in general, I do kind of believe that, that, you know, we often make food more difficult than it needs to be. Um, the other thing that I was vastly against, I mean, big time against, was before and afters. Um, and, and, you know, Maggie actually convinced me, um, you know, to put my before and after up. You know, I didn't want people to see my before and after because I didn't want them to go, well, that's the goal. That's what you're trying to do. I wanted them to kind of have their own thing. And what's been interesting in the last three years, there's been many instances where I've put up pictures that most fitness professionals would, would consider to be unflattering. And that's the point. The point is, is that we're not ripped nonstop, that we're not constantly in a state of physical awesomeness you know and the people that tend to be like that the good majority of the time there was a lot of work involved there and you know the argument that we constantly make is you know is that you should always be looking towards the work side of things always be relatively forgiving of yourself don't necessarily look at things from a very rigid standpoint because you know I'm you know I say it all the time almost to the point of being redundant but the failures provide the light that provides the path and most other systems look at it as you know cheat meals and and all these really negative ways of looking at food and I just don't believe that in fact I'm strongly against all that right and the reason why I'm strongly against it because I haven't seen a whole lot of people that come out the other end whole from that right and so um, does that mean that, you know, you shouldn't have some upregulation of hormones or, you know, downregulation on occasion? No, but, you know, the way that you talk to yourself is so important. So that, that's really the, the overriding message there. All right. I appreciate everybody being here. Sam, Catherine, always a good chat. I think it would be kind of a good thing if we use this space uh, from the standpoint of, you know, trying to i mean we're always going to have to have some level of training and programming right you know that's that's obviously integral part of what we're doing but if if we could use thursday nights from a fat loss perspective and having a fat loss discussion i think that would be helpful for the group overall so i appreciate everybody being here and we'll talk to you guys later you want to say goodbye sam all right goodbye see you paul so <laughs> Catherine. Oh, I had lots to say, but we're out of time. So next time, okay? Oh, you did have lots to say? Well, you're done. You you covered it all. You're amazing. But yes, next week. Okay, well, we'll we'll definitely, you know, we'll we'll make sure that the hamsters that do your internet, hopefully they can be working so we can get you on the the webinar. And you know... You know that I'm Canadian and I'm I'm very polite, so I I, I wait. <laughs> yes, and, and you have your toque on and all that other stuff. Yep. Yeah, we talked about lobsters. Talked about lobsters. So yeah. I mean, come on. But, but I know, I know. I talk about West Coast salmon. I'm good, but thanks, Paul. I think it was awesome. Yeah, and and Catherine obviously, you know, always just speak up because we, you know, Sam and I can see each other, you know, so we can <laughs> we can kind of go back and forth. All right, you guys. Well, I appreciate everybody being here, and we'll talk to you guys later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah.